What do you mean? Mulligan asked. I mean, there's a dragon on that mountain. Go kill it. That's what I mean. We don't need to be doing a bunch of footwork and private investigator nonsense. This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 18, Richter's Ultimatum 1. Linus Lanzel slowly crept through the shadows of the lower platform decking as the ceremonial reception for Prince Eber's wedding continued without a noticeable hitch. A guard dressed in formal event gear lay at his feet, bleeding from the slit in his throat where Linus's blade had quietly swept from out of sight. With that guard out of the way, nothing stood between Linus and his objective. Prince Eber was dressed in his nicest cream tunic with golden trim around the cuffs and collar. The suit hugged his broad shoulders, toned from years of physical fitness and training for the joust. He chatted with his grandfather and his proud father, the current King Eber of the lollipied city known as Umbar. The act of lollipidation is when a powerful wizard places a city or infrastructure within an inhospitable location and magically creates the conditions within that space for life to exist. Umbar was located in the middle of the Alondron Ocean of Kraith. The beautiful castle city with its high white columns and sprawling scenic balconies sat within a cylinder of churning sea that was kept at bay by the powerful mage known as Yemi Salatori. Yemi was almost 11,000 years old. He claimed that it only required a small fraction of a percent of his focus to keep the city from being consumed by the violent waters that made the city worth the pilgrimage to see at a distance. Yemi was the grandfather of the mage Waldo Salatori, who had become famous for having been involved with taking down the infamous Dark Harbinger the previous year. Yemi was also Linus Lanzel's target. The goal was to kill the prince and his new bride, but why fight through an army of guards when the Great Sea can do all of that for him? Linus pulled up his sleeve and saw that he had five minutes before the potion he'd taken would wear off. This task wouldn't be doable without him having taken the cloaking potion that made it nearly impossible for wizards, mages, and sorcerers to detect him by common perception-enhancing spells. A dragon would probably know where he was, but Yemi was none the wiser to his existence. Before ducking under the decking of the platform that had been erected for the stage that the wedding ceremony took place upon, Linus had noticed Yemi standing on the top step of the platform. Linus crept through the cobwebs hanging about the corners of the decking that was just high enough for a person to walk through. The decking was made so that actions could be taken from behind the scenes in the event of a play or show. It was never intended that anyone find their way beneath the decking for this particular event, so they only stationed one guard to cover its entrance. Unsure of where he was in correlation to where Yemi was, Linus pried open his left eye with one hand before plucking the glass eye from its position in its socket. He placed the glass eye on the floor where it quickly rolled away from him. The glass orb bounded over grit and dust, weaving between the beams of decking until it exited from the shadows to the firelight of the reception. The small eyeball bounded up the ramp and rolled between the sandals and boots of the many patrons that had diligently arrived in support of their Prince of Umbar. Waldo and Yemi Salatori were standing upon the top step of the decking, both wearing their nicest set of robes while clutching glasses of wine in their fingers. Everyone was laughing and chatting on the many layers of the decking as a small white ball zipped unnoticed between the feet of the partygoers. I don't know why you don't accept my invitation for apprenticeship, Waldo. Yemi spoke to his grandson, the recently famous Waldo Salatori, high-ranking mage in the newfound League of Extraordinary Heroes. It's not like it would take you very long to develop the focus required to keep the seas at bay as I've done for the last century and a half. 
Too busy to retire here in the sea castle, said Waldo. Maybe if this whole League of Heroes thing doesn't pan out, I'll come back and give you a break part-time. That would be a wonderful relief, albeit impossible, Yemi said tiredly. Why impossible? Waldo asked. Because were you to falter for even a second, the entire wall of ocean would destroy the castle in its entirety. The sea does not like being resisted. But in the end, all will be consumed by the sea. Did you know that a true mage knows when his time will come? Yimmy asked. I'm sure you've told me that a gazillion times, Grandpa, Waldo said. A true mage understands when his time will come, and yet, when it comes, he must have the wisdom to allow life to take its course. Will you be ready, Waldo? Yimmy's eyes met Waldo's as an ominous quiet fell over the reception. A small white ball bounced into Yimmy Salatori's formal light brown boot beneath his robes. Waldo cocked his brow at his grandfather, considering whether or not he should voice the snarky remark in his head. Before he could make that decision, however, the longest curved blade Waldo had ever seen, at least eight feet in length, sliced through the decking of the floor and instantly impaled Yemi Salatori through the chest at an angle. Everyone in the room gasped and gaped in awe at the horror of the situation. The bloodied blade protruded through Waldo's grandfather's shoulder, dripping with the crimson blood of one of the most powerful mages in existence. Find them, Yimmy choked to Waldo as the strength behind the blade suddenly softened. Save yourself. The sudden implications of the clearly mortal wound upon Yemi Salatori dawned on Waldo. Guards hurried to capture the culprit who had executed this action, but the two realities housing the existence of Umbar in one and the total destruction of Umbar in the other became singularly the latter. Water exploded from the many stairwells leading to the once scenic balconies. A surge of ocean flooded through the lower decking as Linus Lanzel was swept away along with the guards and the patrons who had been enjoying the leisure and luxury of the expensive party just seconds earlier. It was a sensory overload for Waldo. He didn't know which action to take. Attempt to save his grandfather, which was clearly impossible. The sword had gone through multiple organs, including his heart. Try to save the prince, who was frantically trying to swim for his new bride before she could be pulled away by the sucking whirlpool that had formed at the entrance to the dungeons, or to try to save himself before it was too late. His options narrowed within the seconds that passed as the ocean overtook the north wall, sending a massive tidal wave of sea through the room. The prince and his bride were knocked into the cyclone by a number of other partygoers and were presumably no more as they were sucked underwater instantly. Waldo's grandfather fell sideways into a gush of water that became pink around him as his lifeblood poured into the open sea. It had all happened so quickly. Waldo had no choice but to do as his grandfather instructed, save himself. The water was already to his knobbly knees. He created a bubble shield around his person as the castle debris and decking mixed with the destructive raging sea. The walls and columns came plunging down around him. The bubble shield was powerful enough to protect him, but what good is power when you can do nothing to save anyone but yourself? Yemi Salatori was right. It had only taken two minutes for the entirety of Umbar to become no more than debris floating under the ocean. The lives of 5,000 citizens went out like a candle flame under a heavy wind. Waldo, having no recourse other than to save his own life, magically propelled the globular bubble shield containing himself through the ocean toward the surface. He soared through the window of the falling wall of Umbar Castle as he left the city behind. Great schools of fish swam away from the silently rising plume of dust that was caused by the sudden upheaval of content that had been untouched for over a century. Rocketing to the surface of the Krayath Sea, Waldo's bubble shield bobbed and bounced beneath the clear blue afternoon sky. Thousands of pillows, blankets, and articles of clothing suddenly surfaced across the sea around him. Those were the lighter items. 
he really didn't want to be there when the bodies began to emerge from the seascape, and many would. He propelled his bubble shield northeast. Waldo was able to get 22 of the 25 miles northeast it would take to reach the nearby shore. After that, his bubble shield wore off and he had to swim the rest of the way. Emerging from the ocean onto the sandy beaches of southwest Chartan, he collapsed beneath a palm tree and took several minutes to regain his bearings. With a few cooked crabs in his stomach, he began his journey north for the tower city of Roe. 2. Richter, Saladia, and Ella approached the front door to the large villa standing before them. The three carried their medium gear, assuming this quest wouldn't require much effort. Two hours prior, they had received an inquiry about having someone purge some of the creatures from their basement. Apparently, the person had called a pest control company that abandoned the task for fear for their workers' safety. I still don't understand why we're the go-to cleanup crew when other people can't do their jobs, Ella complained. Being an elf, she was taller than the dwarf fighter Richter, but shorter than her roguish human companion Saladia. With her bow in hand, Ella had the best aim of the entire guild, she had a plan for almost every situation, and could more often than not notice details or threats before the rest of the party. Yeah, our company isn't concerned about the safety of its workers. Saladia cocked her brow at Richter's back. Her long red hair was done up in a ponytail. She was known for having dozens of concealed weapons on her person, reliable as a backup ranged attacker, and could crack almost any lock the group came across. Richter ignored them as he stepped up the steps and rapped on the wooden door to the villa. He had his axe laced to his back and carried two throwing axes and holsters on his hips. He wore light chainmail for this encounter for better maneuverability. Upon his head was his favorite iron helmet. The door swung open and an elderly woman stepped out. Good afternoon, ma'am. We're here to clear out this basement of yours. Richter grunted in his raspy Dorwin voice. I'm so glad you've arrived, she said as she descended the steps. Just over here, let me show you. Ella and Saladia exchanged a bored expression as they followed Richter down the ornate stone pathway leading between the different buildings of the woman's estate. The sun was still high in the early afternoon blue sky. A flock of ducks honked as they soared in their V formation overhead. The three followed the woman to a locked storage building door. She withdrew a key and pressed it into the lock before turning it to the left three rotations. The door swung open and the three were able to descend a set of steps into the cool darkness while the elderly woman waited up top. Wow, that is rank. Ella pulled her undershirt from the neck of her leather tunic before stuffing her nose into it. Smells like rotten eggs, Saladia winced. Mmm, I could go for a Monte Cristo scramble right now, Richter said eagerly. Guys, I can't, Ella gagged and pressed her hands to her knees. My sense of smell is way more powerful than yours and this is killing me. So you're gonna puss out on us, eh? Richter turned to her from the bottom of the stairs. Screw off, Richter, said Ella. See if I pull you out of waist-deep water next time you slip and fall into the river. Richter ignored her and continued down the hall. We dwarves can smell all kinds of things that fill the underparts of the planet's crust. Don't think I can't smell what you smell, he rambled as he continued into the basement. Go wait up top, Saladia said, visibly breathing through her mouth instead of her nose. I'll help him solve whatever this is. Ella hurriedly climbed the steps to join the old woman topside. Saladia joined Richter's side and the two both withdrew torches. Check out what shank the blacksmith made for me. Richter plucked off his plate helmet and showed Saladia the back of it where a sconce mount had been welded. Seriously? Saladia scoffed. You're not afraid of burning your scalp or cinching your hair when the torch runs low? 
There might be a little brain damage, but nothing to be concerned about. Richter cracked the torch to life and placed it within the mount before putting the helmet onto his head. Inventive, Saladia said, choosing her word carefully. The torch flickered over Richter's head without him needing to keep hold of it. I think it boosts my charisma at least a point, don't you think? Richter spread his arms. Saladia shook her head with a disappointing grin. Dorky at best. Probably an idea you'll regret later. If you don't think a well-lit dwarf with two free hands is sexy as hell... I'm begging you not to finish that sentence, Saladia interrupted. By the way, you've done nothing but make yourself a target. A target with two free hands! Richter withdrew his hand axes and stepped down the threshold into a large basement room where vines by the dozens were growing throughout the room, along the walls and across the stone ceiling. Stacks of storage boxes had been knocked over, their contents strewn across the room. Racks of clothing and sewing equipment were all covered in an eerie black mold. Okay, starting to understand what Ella was talking about. Richter chewed the air with a disgusted snarl upon his leathery face. Saladia's eyes rolled into the back of her head before she collapsed. Richter turned around and helped her up. Sorry, she gagged while clutching her chest and making for the exit. She made it halfway back to the top before Richter could hear the splatter of her vomit upon the stairs. Send some heroes with a little stomach while you're up there! Richter yelled as he turned back to the strange vines so he could follow them to their source. Some team. Seems like I'm the only one doing all the... Richter reached the back corner of the room and slowly looked up. Towering over him was the bulbous head of a large plant upon a craned vine-like neck. Three sets of razor-sharp teeth opened as the plant reared back like a snake. Topside, Saladia and Ella were breathing the fresh air next to a tree full of baby birds when a violent commotion came from down in the basement behind them. Richter yelled for help multiple times while grunting and audibly swinging his axe through the darkness. Little help would be nice! Okay, you dirty bird, I got your number on this one. He managed between the beating he was obviously taking. Okay, okay, I'm going. Saladia took a final breath of fresh air before ducking back into the basement. When she reached the bottom, Richter was holding onto the wall at the corner of the basement where a hole had formed from the sewer. He was covered in oily black goo that was also all over the basement in a massacre of disgusting puddles around chopped and hacked vines. The smell was somehow worse now than before. Her stomach lurched. Help! Richter yelled as he was yanked into the darkened sewer passage below. Damn it, Richter! Saladia swallowed what was left of her breakfast and hurried into the hole after him. The black ooze was everywhere. She followed it around the corner where she was just able to see Richter's kicking legs as he was pulled around the channel ahead. Saladia splashed through the mucky sewage water and jumped onto the metal catwalk that rounded the passage. She came to a large hall where a massive outcrop of bulbous, vicious plant-like heads were stemming from a large hole in the middle of the floor where the collective water from the many city blocks around them poured. A narrow beam of light from the street gutter overhead cast a small amount of light upon the plant monster. Crowns of flowering orange and yellow petals framed the necks of the many heads that snapped eagerly from the gargantuan central plant. The main vine that was wrapped around Richter's ankle lifted him up like it was a delicious treat as it slowly brought him to its mouth. Slotia reached into her cloak with both hands and brought out eight throwing knives, each positioned dangerously between her fingers, and hurled them at the throat of the main plant. It gave a staggered hiss as it shrank low, dropping Richter face first onto the catwalk grating beneath the rush of water. The collective vines began wriggling and dragging through the muck of the sewer. A meaty plant tendril flopped toward Slotia as she moved in. She ducked the vine and several others, hopping from one slithering cable to the next. 
With her torch in hand, Saladia brought out her dagger while barely avoiding the monster plant's other attempts to thwart her progress. Several of the heads lunged at her, but she punched and elbowed them away. As the whole of the room began to fold upon the great sewer plant, Saladia brought her blade upon the throat of the being. Smoking black ooze poured from the thing's neck before Saladia jammed the light of her torch into the gash she had made. Fire ignited throughout the ooze almost instantly as the plant monster screeched. It instinctively released its grasp on the broken catwalk grating before slipping into the hole far below, dragging its many tendril plant cords with it. Saladia helped Richter up. The two avoided the many pulling and gripping plant roots that swiped at them on their way to the hole in the center of the room. They heard a distant series of splashes followed by a faraway screech from the plant monster. Well, I'll call it a win. Richter turned and started back down the graded walkway where they had come from. Either way, I'll contact Mason and see if he can come by and repair this customer's wall so that kind of thing won't happen again. At least not for a little while. Make sure you bill her accordingly this time, said Slaudia. Rent's not paid in favors. The two were covered in the smelly black ooze from the plant monster. They climbed back through the hole in the wall and ascended the steps toward the sunny land above where Ella and the old woman were waiting for them. Richter explained that he'd have that wall back up by the end of the day, and that she shouldn't expect any other monstrosities in the future like the one they encountered. As for all your stuff in your basement, we're not responsible for any lost or damaged property in the pursuit of solving our quest, Richter said. It will likely smell like that for a long time, so good luck with that. The woman looked flabbergasted as Richter cut her the bill that amounted to 80 silver in labor and expenses. She probably only received 25 silver a week in elderly compensation, so the bill was fairly high. Considering they had come out when no one else would, and put their lives in danger to a degree, 80 silver seemed decent enough to Richter. The woman paid them a gold piece, and Richter handed her back 20 silver coins. You might be able to get the city to pay you back since the source of the problem was from the sewer. Might be worth chasing, might be not. Let us know if you have any problems in the future. Richter thanked her, and then the three made their way back to the livery in town. You really don't like billing people, do you? Saladia asked Richter after they had retrieved their horses and were on their way back to the tower city of Roe on the horizon in the distance. She rode her dark brown stallion that could probably crush the trotting half-sized white pony that Richter rode upon. Don't get me wrong, grunted Richter. I like getting paid, but I don't like putting people out in the process. You did a service, said Saladia. You get paid for your service or you don't do that service anymore. Richter pursed his lips before glaring back at Saladia. Mmm, maybe I like killing plant monsters for fun. Maybe taking a poor old woman's money for doing just that seems like an unbalanced transaction. Some might argue that the two of you smell worse than death. Ella, astride her elven-bred mare, added to Saladia's side of the debate. The plant didn't think it smelled so bad, Richter grumbled. The plant had broken through our host's wall, infested her basement, and destroyed half her property. It came from the sewer, so of course it didn't mind its own smell, Saladia stated. I build her! What more do you want? Richter yelled. It was the way that you build her, regretfully, Ella said. Cut her a deal, lower the price, but give the customer the bill with confidence. And what does an autistic elf know about business? Richter asked, to which Ella glared daggers at him over her shoulder. Besides, if I lower the price, then you two start complaining at me for that. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. Seems more likely to me that people just enjoy complaining. Ella and Saladia stared at one another, deciding which of them should be the one to rip Richter a new asshole. The outraged look the two composed seemed enough to remedy the situation, at least to one another. They let Richter live in ignorance and said nothing more on the subject for the rest of the ride to the Tower City. 
3. Mulligan, the priest of their group, was standing at the reception desk chatting with a new customer when Ella, Saladia, and Richter returned with 20 silver worth of fried chicken for Richter, a salad for Ella, and barbecued short ribs for Saladia and Mulligan. Dothori, their bard main, was in school until 5, but would probably drop by to finish her homework while being close to the group. Waldo, the last member of their crew, a powerful wizard who preferred the local fungi over alcohol, was supposed to be at a wedding that evening, but he emerged from the changing rooms after having just taken a shower shortly after the three arrived. Waldo, how did the wedding go? Richter asked as he set his bag of chicken on the table. Well, the bride and groom are dead now, Waldo said matter-of-factly. That's how you know it's true love, when both parties just want to die in one another's arms before the cold of another dead relationship seeps into their bones. Richter finished his sentence and turned around to realize that Ella, Saladia, Waldo, Mulligan, and the customer he was talking to were all staring at him, aghast that he would not only think such thoughts, but have the audacity to voice them out loud. I thought he was joking, don't look at me. The bride and groom and my grandfather, everyone in Umbar is dead, you heartless bastard, Waldo snapped. Mm, smoke a blonde like you normally do and shake it off, Richter growled. He was known for doubling down on his negative statements when pressed for sympathy, almost always. He gathered his chicken and trudged to the reading room to place his food on the desk in the middle of the well-lit hall facing the western horizon where Dothori would probably arrive shortly to share his chicken. Richter and Dothori were closer friends than anyone else in the crew and typically kept one another in check. What happened, Waldo? Slaudia asked with her arms crossed as she stood in the doorway, still draped within her dark woolen travel cloak. He told her and Ella everything while Mulligan finished his conversation with the customer. I didn't know what else to do, so I just came back here. He stared into space blankly, unable to process that the entire town where his grandfather had been, all those people in that beautiful castle city, it was all gone. It was the damn king's wife, Queen Drianus, said Waldo. I mean, her sister, Duchess Marvis, in the West. I know she had something to do with it. They've had a nasty rivalry for the last 15 years because Lanya and her capital city had to supply the boats that allowed tourists to travel to Umbar. No one wanted to stay in Lanyon because the castle was the only nice part of the city, and no one's allowed inside. So people just went to the wharf or stayed a regretful night in the hotel before booking a ferry to Umbar. Fifteen years ago, after Marvis took the throne when her and Drianus's father retired at last, Marvis signed into law that in order to book a ferry ticket, you had to book a hotel and wait one night in Lanyon. Most people paid the additional expense and ghosted on the hotel, arriving the next day for the ferry just despite the new Lanyon law. For whatever reason, tits for tats and tats for tits. Ha! Tits! Richter yowled from the next room. Waldo ignored him. The two cities started hating one another. I caught a glimpse of my grandfather's murderer. It was the assassin Linus Lancel. I don't know if he's dead or not. I wouldn't count on it, Slodia scoffed. The guy's like a cat with nine lives. I think even a lucky cat would need supernatural powers to escape what happened to Umbar, Waldo said. Linus Lancel is just an assassin for hire, said Slodia. Him being the trigger man doesn't give us enough evidence to suggest it was Marvis who hired him. Who else would benefit from an abrupt end in relations with a city that was taking advantage of them financially? Tourism was the only thing keeping Umbar alive, and that required Lanyon to be complicit at Lanyon's expense, Waldo made his case. That's a very compelling reason, said Ella, but didn't Lanyon benefit from the relationship by being the fairy city? Why couldn't Lanyon have cleaned up and catered to the tourism that Umbar brought for them? Lanyon's on a main highway along the coast, so that and the regular shipping traffic meant that dealing with Umbar was an unnecessary hassle, Waldo shrugged. Still, brought people to Lanyon nonetheless, Ella said. Dothori arrived as the conversation moved to other topics. 
Mulligan sat at her side across from Richter so he could help her with her homework. Ella retired for the day and said goodbye before heading back to her apartment flat several levels below them. Slaudia was preparing an afternoon coffee in the kitchen when Waldo approached her. Listen, he whispered as she turned to him. I, I know about you. I know everything. Slaudia gaped back at him. What do you mean? She laughed nervously. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't, like, do anything now, even if I did something a long time ago, like, you know. Are you talking about smoking herb? Slaudia squinted. Waldo looked taken aback. What? No, I'm not talking about smoking herb. He glared back at her. Oh, Slaudia said, confused. I need you to do a job for me, Waldo whispered. Realization washed over Slaudia's face. I think I understand now. No. She turned and picked up her coffee to take a sip. You're not going to deny a challenge, and I'm challenging. Don't do that, Slaudia cut him off sternly. I challenge you to kill Marvis in revenge for what was done to Umbar, Waldo stated. Damn it! Slaudia slammed her fist on the counter, rattling the silverware within the drawer below. Hey, what's the equipment? Richter yelled from the next room. You used to do this all the time, Waldo said, still speaking lowly. I know who you are, who you used to be. But that's not who I am anymore, Waldo. You know that, Slaudia said, desperation in her eyes. Take it back, please. I don't want to instigate a war. They struck first, he emphasized. They started the war. And they finished it, said Saladia. It's over. Umbar is underwater. But it's not over because I was there. I saw it. I saw the city fall. It took less than five minutes. What's the difference between what happened to Umbar and an army raising a city to the ground? Umbar wasn't supposed to exist, Saladia stated. You can't build a city at the bottom of the ocean and magically expect it to stay safe forever and ever. It was dumb to put that place down there to begin with. That's horseshit and you know it, Waldo pointed at her. Someone did something to hurt someone else. The balance is not equal. I'm asking you, appealing to you, help me get revenge for my grandfather in the city of Umbar. My challenge stands. Saladia gave a heavy sigh. You are setting me up with a mission that I don't come back from. That's not a fair expectation of someone you trust. I'm not just some assassin for hire. But that's the thing. I don't trust anyone else but you to do this, Waldo said. I'm not the person you want to ask this of anymore. I'm sorry, Waldo, Slaudia said. Fine, fine, the challenge still stands, Waldo spoke. His eyes were dark and serious in a way that Slaudia had never seen before that day. Let me know if you change your mind, or better yet, surprise me. He walked off to go to some other part of the headquarters as Slaudia continued drinking her coffee. Slaudia shook her head and placed her coffee cup on the counter. When she pulled her hand away, it was shaking. Damn it, Waldo. She said under her breath and stepped out through the front door into the city streets. Though the sun cast its light from the west upon the city, a rain cloud slowly made its way across the sky, sending a gentle afternoon rain to the city of Roe. There were large archways that opened to the sky along the walls of each level that housed the interior city. From the angle of the wind, Saladia was able to feel the sprinkles upon her cheeks as she descended the steps toward the fine arts district on 3rd. That's where all the schools and libraries were. She spent the next two hours studying Lanyon in the library. Only a fool took on a job without knowing the layout both physically and politically before taking action. Lanyon was, as Waldo had pointed out, a coastal city that maintained a steady GDP by importing and exporting products from Ire and other parts of Shartan. It was formed nearly 700 years prior as an outpost against raiding marauders and had gradually evolved into a gigantic trade city. With the Calatran mountain range directly to its west, foot traffic was directed along the coast through Lanyon, which naturally kept the city flourishing as travelers moved from Trenton to the south, north toward Roe. Lanyon didn't have a very positive reputation. 
Slotia had passed through several times. While nothing had ever happened to her along the main road through town, it was known as a seedy place for cutthroats and gang members. She kept tabs on all the gang activity between cities. A few were concerning, particularly the sudden uptick in violence in Cathra, but it was the coastal towns that were drawing these unwanted patrons for just that reason. It was easy to find work, easy to gamble in the bars with travelers coming and going, easy to hop on a ship to anywhere if you pissed off too many people during those first two endeavors. With the steady bickering of wars between cities and the insurrection caused by their current king and his beloved new queen, the worst seemed to come out of everyone from everywhere. Several news articles indicated a considerable rift forming between Umbar and Lanyon in recent weeks and months. The biggest scandal was that Prince Ever was arranged to marry Duchess Marvise's daughter Angla Marvise, but he had fallen for a nobody from an unknown town on an island somewhere, according to the Lanyon media's perspective. Romana Winson was not a nobody. She was a famous actress from the island paradise city of Wharton, and heiress to a considerable amount of property in Eyre, an entire kingdom of property in fact. In a treaty settlement involving Wharton's royal family, King Narcissus had awarded Wharton the lost kingdom of Anya on Eyre's eastern coastline. There were a number of reasons for this exchange of land, the biggest being the accidental assault Narcissus had initiated upon the island that resulted in horrific wartime atrocities throughout the paradise. For three months. Narcissus's official reasoning for the land offer was that Wharton was upon an active volcano that was set to blow any day. This was actually largely true, and a serious concern for the island's inhabitants. Whenever the royal family married their heiress, her and her husband were to take on the restoration of the new land in Eyre. A large migration was expected upon sufficient completion of the restorations, which would result in more reliable tax income for the capital city of Narcissus. With her sudden death along with her betrothed, Prince Ever, the Wharton royal family line was at a loss as to how to proceed without an heir to their city. With the new king in power, it was unclear as to how the subtle dispute would be solved. Based on everything Slaudia read, Lanyon and Duchess Marvis had everything to gain from severing ties with Umbar as well as responding in proper kind to what they considered to be an insult by Prince Ever. Had Prince Ever gone along with the marriage, the relationship between Umbar and Lanyon would have strengthened, but by choosing Wharton over Lanyon, Lanyon would lose almost all of the tax benefit they were receiving from Umbar to Wharton. It was a complicated political dispute that seemed very likely to have been ended by the actions of Duchess Marvis. Marvis was known to be politically dangerous. Many of her critics had disappeared or turned up dead in poetic locations. A bard that had perpetuated songs over high-handed goings-on had wound up in six pieces upon the stage of the theater where he had often worked. A journalist that wrote honest truths about the results of her economic tax increase had woken up alive in the wilderness, but his hands had been sawed off while he was comatose after being poisoned by a powerful agent. Stories like these have been collected and archived in row over the years, but no one could prove she was behind any of these hit jobs so she continued in her position of power and would continue, unhindered by useless cities like Umbar that she had personally criticized as dead weight. Saladia went to the bar alone after putting away all the articles containing the evidence she needed to make her decision. She drank six beers as the sun disappeared beyond the edge of the horizon far in the distance beyond Sagegrove Field, leaving the sky overcast and drizzly as the weather was known to be in central Chartan. She was ready to say yes, she would be willing to accept this job, except Marvis was the new queen's sister. It would mean she would have to leave Chartan, and even Eyre wouldn't be a place in which she could disappear. She would have to go even further, and few knew what lay beyond the great ocean surrounding the mainlands. Assassinating Marvis was the easy part. She could do that with a little ingenuity and skill. The hard part was getting out. Lanyon's castle was a glorified fortress. 
Getting in from the ground would be nigh impossible, but Saladia knew the castle wasn't where the assassination would take place. That really would be a foolish move. She had kept one article from the library that she had unfolded on the bar in front of her. It was a single article for the royal ceremony of queenship for Duchess Marvis's daughter, Angla, that was set to take place the following weekend. Without the need of a useless husband, Angla was set to take the crown of Duchess of Lanyon as her mother planned to retire after her 15 years of success. The article showed Angla looking devilishly smug in her royal gown. The expression matched the sneer her mother displayed regularly. With a look like that, Saladia found it hard to figure which one of them might have hired Linus Lanzel, if not both of them. Their line of power was one and the same. Did Saladia really just up the ante to two assassinations in the same attack? Was it even possible? She swore again, crumpling the article in her fist. She called the bartender over to give her another beer and the check. There was work to be done. 4. Dothori's voice teacher sat at the piano bench next to the baby grand piano Dothori had bought with her share of the money the group had earned after taking down the Dark Harbinger. She had her own room in their headquarters, but the terms of their living arrangement with Dothori's parents back in Rainfall required at least two members of their group to be present with her at any given time in the headquarters. Those two were currently Richter and Mulligan as everyone else had gone home for the evening. Since Dothori's powers stemmed from her voice, Richter had offered to pay for her voice lessons. The best opera teacher in Rowe was a voice coach named Lamar Ulrich. He was a man who wore proper dress tunics with several service badges clipped to his collar. He spoke like an average person, but when he opened his mouth and sang, it was as though an angel were suddenly gracing their hall. One would have expected the voice to belong to a thin soprano, but Lamar had a large stomach and a fat throat. He claimed to have seven different octaves of range, which made Ella scoff. She was the only one with a musical background other than the Thori. When pressed to prove this ability several weeks back, Lamar warned them that his low and high octaves were beyond the usual scope of audible sound to humans, and could be dangerous to the environment. That made Richter want a demonstration even more. After filling Lamar with red wine from the vineyard storefront next door, he let them hear his low bass which rattled the glass of their headquarters in the frames. He gave them a very brief demonstration of his high voice. Two seconds of Lamar's high tone literally cracked the glass window in their meeting room. Excellent! Richter rubbed his hands together. Let's make teaching that range a priority, could we? But high range isn't as important as sustainability, sound quality, and sound depth, Lamar argued. Show her all that crap later. I want my singer able to break glass as soon as possible, Richter stated. Richter wasn't allowed to sit in on voice lessons anymore after that. He had to quietly wait in the next room while the lesson was conducted. Lamar refused to teach methods that would be damaging to the student, which intentionally learning the high range for violent purposes fell under the category of damaging. If Dathori were to naturally develop a powerful high range, then that would be different. Once the lesson was over, Dathori, Mulligan, and Richter made their way to the bar. The bartender didn't mind letting Dathori practice her singing in front of an audience, and Dathori made more money doing that than the rest of them did doing quests by day. Since she was underage, the men kept their manners present. Richter or Mulligan would run off the ruffians who didn't. Did you get a beat on this new customer you were talking to? Richter asked as the waitress served them each an ale. His name is Gil Maynard, said Mulligan. He's a wealthy duke from two levels up. His brother went missing and he wants someone to find out what happened. That sounds like detective work. That's not what we're about, Richter said. What do you mean? Mulligan asked. I mean... There's a dragon on that mountain, go kill it. That's what I mean. We don't need to be doing a bunch of footwork and private investigator nonsense. 
I don't see how investigating isn't technically questing. You do what you must to learn the lay of the land, figure out how to solve the problem, and know everyone involved. Then why doesn't this Maynard guy just call the police? Richter asked. Mulligan glanced around the rowdy bar as he took a sip from his drink. He did. They responded like you did. It's been two months and the guards haven't done anything more than ask the neighbors what happened before concluding that he probably ran off with some other woman to another continent. Probably did, Richter drawled. He downed the last of his ale and ordered another. Anyway, Gil is offering 100 gold just to know his brother's fate. If he's dead, then so be it. If he's alive, Gil just wants to know he's happy. He doesn't even need to make contact. Richter groaned and rolled his eyes. Sorry, but hard pass. It's not my pace. All right, I'll see if Ella wants to help me track him down, Mulligan said. We need income, and 80 silver for the day isn't going to cut it. Omine's teeth. Fine, Richter spat. Why are you so irritable tonight? Mulligan nursed his ale. He checked on Thori to make sure she was fine. She continued singing the news on stage as people clapped around the bar in time with the song. Soladia, Richter growled. Mulligan gave him a quizzical look. People think I'm stupid, you know? I like to let everyone think I am, but I ain't. I'm not following you, Mulligan said. That cheeky little Waldo. If he wasn't so damn powerful, he'd be out on his ungrateful behind in a heartbeat. That little brat challenged Zeladia to do something very dangerous. They think I just sit in my chair in the other room and eat chicken like a docile boar. But I hear everything. What happened? Mulligan looked genuinely concerned. Waldo saw the city Umbar go underwater, so he wants Zeladia to kill Queen Drianus' sister Marvis and Lanyon as revenge or whatever. Took everything for me to not step in and get involved. I'm trying to choose my words carefully because I can't allow members of our team to execute political hit jobs on kings and queens. That's not what we're about. Richter finished his second ale. His piggy dwarven face was already going red from the quick intake of alcohol. I don't think Saladia is foolish enough to accept such a proposition, do you? Mulligan asked. Richter took a deep breath. I know, Saladia. Probably know her better than the rest of you. Saladia ain't one to turn her nose up to a challenge. She'll find a reason. She'll make one up if she has to. I heard Waldo challenge her outright. Then he left the hominate damn challenge right there on the table before he left. She knew it, he knew it, and I knew it. If I don't step in and put an end to this mess, it might be the end of us before we even get started. You should talk to Saladia. Mulligan said. If she was considering something like that, she would have to do it outside of our organization and under the veil of her old guise. I think Cell understands that she can't be the Saladia we know and the assassin she used to be at the same time. Richter glanced up and out the window. Speak of the devil! He spoke as he placed five silver on the table. Watch the dory! Meet you two back at the headquarters! He pushed up from his seat and scampered between the growing crowd Dathori was drawing. Mulligan looked flabbergasted at being left alone so suddenly before shrugging and reclining in his seat to watch Dathori sing with the crowd. Throwing open the bar door, Richter slipped on the steps and fell down in the street water outside. It was sprinkling across the city. Richter climbed to his feet and followed Saladia at a distance as she made her way through town. He knew she had a sixth sense for people watching her, so he stayed fifty yards back, hurrying to bridge the distance between them when she went around the corner. At last, he saw her look both ways at an intersection. She crossed and entered the building on the opposite side. It was a gnomish warehouse and machine shop. He waited in the alleyway for about 20 minutes before she and a red-haired gnome in overalls emerged. 
Leading the way, the gnome crossed the street and rapped on the door to the building. This building was by all accounts vacant. There was no sign, there was no lot, just an unmarked storefront with the windows boarded up. The gnome knocked on the door several times before it finally opened. A man with thick black-rimmed glasses opened the door and beckoned them inside. Slotia and the gnome entered. He waited over an hour. He was sobering up when she finally emerged with the gnome. Walking back across the street, the gnome re-entered the warehouse and Slotia headed back in the direction of the headquarters. When she was out of sight, Richter furiously hurried across the street toward the vacant building. He hammered on the door with his meaty fists several times. No one answered. His patience finally gone, Richter kicked the door in to find the man with glasses sitting at a table in the rundown building with books everywhere. Who are you? Richter yelled at the man who still looked shocked to have watched this strange, clearly drunk dwarf kick his door in. This must be some misunderstanding, the man stammered. You're at the wrong residence. I'm at the right residence, now who the devil are ye? He put his hands on the table in front of the man as he glared at him. My name is Archibald. I'm just an architect. I don't have any money, as you can see. I'm squatting here until I can get my affairs in order, the man said. Architect? Richter asked. This wasn't what he was expecting. No, you're the head of some assassin organization, aren't you? What? The man's face crinkled. I know who you are, now fess up! Richter yelled, slamming his hands on the table. I told you who I am, the man pleaded. I'm a former university professor. I don't know any assassins. Richter growled as he grabbed a book off the table and opened it up. The book was on complex infrastructures and included the algebraic lingo that went into mapping and setting structures within space accurately. Richter, eyes darting back and forth, dropped the book and ran out of the building. He looked left and right before making his way back to the bar. 5. The day was the Alondron day of post-day, their version of Thursday. It was the first time Richter was able to get the group together since Waldo's terrible experience with Umbar. All six members of the group were in their meeting hall with the now slightly cracked window facing the clear western sky. Richter paced on the lifted platform at the head of the room behind the mounted speaker's podium. I'm curious if anyone here knows anything about loyalty, Richter said. The group knew he was speaking rhetorically, so no one answered. Loyalty means you do what you must for those you want to work with, even if it means changing the way you conduct your life. Richter took a few seconds to walk back to the podium, which was taller than him, so he had to stand beside it at the head of the room. I know about Umbar, said Richter as he met Waldo's eyes. I know about Lanyon, he glanced at Saladia. I know about Duchess Marvis, and I know about this challenge you've given to Saladia, Waldo. That's between me and Cell, Waldo said. Not when what you're planning might cause serious problems for the rest of us. You think the Rowian officials will just leave us alone? First they'll kill you, he pointed at Saladia. Then they'll come for our entire organization. If you plan to go along with this, I want both of you gone. Forget about it, Saladia uncrossed her arms. I'm not accepting. My research can't deduce whether Marvis or her daughter hired the assassin. It was definitely one of the two, but I don't know which one. Sorry, Waldo, Saladia said without looking at him as she wiped the wrinkles from her woolen gray skirt over her black stockinged legs. Waldo shrugged and rolled his eyes. So here's my ultimatum to you two, Richter began. If something were to occur and one or both of you found yourselves on the wrong end of a political assassination, our partnerships would be over. I don't condone chaotic evil behavior. Do I make myself clear? Saladia and Waldo nodded. Dothori, Mulligan, and Ella looked thoroughly confused as they sat in the middle of this. On to real business, continued Richter. Mulligan, you mentioned this wealthy individual had a job for us. Let's all hear the details of that once more. 
Mulligan told everyone everything that the wealthy duke had told him several evenings earlier. The group discussed ways of going about gathering evidence. You mentioned that the duke found a receipt for a ticket to Cathra, said Seladia. I'm going to follow up on that lead and check my sources in Cathra if you don't mind. I'll probably need a few days to come up with something. Cathra was on the southern tip of Eyre, a completely different continent than the one they were currently on. Great, said Richter. I'll come with you. I'll move faster alone, said Slaudia. Plus, you always complain that those long boat rides make you seasick. Richter squinted at her. He swallowed and licked his lips between his mustache and beard. All right, in that case, Waldo and I will check out the family and friends and see if we can find this guy's son's last location. It's his brother, said Mulligan. What? Richter glared at him. Mulligan glanced between Slaudia and Ella on his left. Gil Maynard, his brother, is the one that disappeared. I believe Maynard has three daughters, and they're all fine and healthy. Whatever, we'll find out where the damn brother was last seen. Ella Dothori, go to the guard headquarters and see if you can dig anything up in their records on Gil Maynard or his brother. The guy might be sitting in jail for some crime he's too ashamed of to ask for help. After that, check the morgue. Dothori is 11 years old, said Ella in a sassy tone. How about Dothori and I check with the family and friends about his last location and you two go check out the guard headquarters, jails, and morgue. Richter heaved a deep, frustrated sigh. Fine! Everybody do whatever you feel like! The five of them in their chairs across from Richter got up and gathered their things. I need receipts, Saladia, Richter pointed at her. She nodded and hurried out of the meeting hall first. Come on, kiddo, said Ella as she put her arm around Dothori's shoulder. Let's go chat with some people. Maybe we'll get lucky and I can show you how to conduct a proper interrogation. Cool, Dothori and Ella left the room. I'll stay here in case a new job walks in, Mulligan said. If no one shows up by early afternoon, here's 20 silver. Richter gave Mulligan a bag of 20 silver coins. Get a drink and chat up the bartender in every bar you can find in town. Start on the ninth level of row. 20 silver should be enough to get you sufficiently wasted for the day. Just don't make an ass of yourself like I do. If you insist. Mulligan grinned as he stashed the bag of coins in his inner robe pocket. Waldo and Richter joined forces and left the headquarters, making their way to the nearest tavern so they could lubricate themselves before going to check out the guard headquarters. Richter wanted to keep an eye on at least one of the two, and Waldo would have to suffice. Saladia descended the steps to the bottom floor of the Tower City where she entered the stables and rented a speedy mare that would be her companion for the next few days. It would take 12 hours to travel to Cherry so she could get a ticket for Cathra. She had no intention of going to Cathra, but she would need to buy her ticket for Richter's sake anyway. Honestly, with Chester out of commission, Lanyon was the best city to book a voyage to Cathra, even if it was a few hours further than Cherry from Roe. But how would it look after what she told Richter in the meeting earlier if she had actually been in Lanyon at any point close to the weekend of the ceremony? Unfortunately for everyone, Saladia actually would be in Lanyon during the ceremony. Too much had already happened for her to cancel the execution now. Too many actions in play, despite Richter's threat. An ultimatum? Really? It was too silly coming from Richter to be serious, but Saladia also knew that he was very serious. He often slurred his words, spoke sarcastically, and said things that were grammatically incorrect, but when he was angry, the sly tongue he kept under the surface of his personality emerged. Richter was no fool, and she knew he would follow through on his threat when she succeeded. Being a lone woman riding between the places of the world, Slaudia turned around on the saddle of her horse while traveling on a long, straight path through the arching trees to see three men following at a distance. When she realized they were following her, she gigged her horse to move faster. They gave chase, only to be clotheslined by a hair-thin wire that had been mounted between the trees on either side of the path that made a god-awful mess of them and their horses. 
whistling, Saladius' horse came trotting back to her from down the road as she emerged from the tree line alongside the road. Saladia clutched one of her knives in a stab-ready grip. She crouched over one of the three now-dead riders who was effectively two-thirds the person he was before. His horse's head lay next to him a few feet from the body that was in a disgusting sprawl. Poking the blade of her knife into the man's breast pocket, she stabbed the corner of a folded piece of paper that was barely visible. Withdrawing the paper, she saw the entire page burn with the symbol of the Cloaked Hand Assassin's Order, known as K.O. to any thief worth their salt. She found it strange that they would be following her. If the men had been assailants looking to take advantage of her vulnerable position, men were men and that's unforgivable, but it was certainly understandable. To discover that they were from an order that rivaled her own former assassin's guild, now? It had been twelve years since Nightblade had fallen. All the thieves called these guilds by their acronyms, so it was just KB to her. She had thought being out for over a decade would mean no one cared about her, but here they were. The page cindered to ash before Saladia's narrowed eyes. Richter. She flicked the last of the hanging page from her blade before sheathing it at her hip beneath her cloak. As per the usual arrangement, the men carried a dagger in their clothes but nothing else. They didn't even have travel money on them. Slotia climbed onto her horse and left the massacre behind as she continued for Cherry. The next day, Slotia Fifi, the gnome engineer and Archibald, the architect, stood before a two-story residence in the Upper East Side of Lanyon. They were about a block away from the castle where Marvise and her daughter were located. The house stood against the cloudy, overcast sky that threatened rain. You're sure about this? Archibald looked to Saladia. His glasses were dotted with sprinkles as the wind wafted the poop stench of the moats rounding the castle down the street and into their nostrils. Yeah, Saladia winced at the smell, stepping up the steps to knock on the door to the house. Claiming to be amateur astronomers, the elderly woman living at the house on the corner agreed to rent the upstairs room to them for the weekend at a high price. The price went higher when they told her that the three intended to modify the room considerably. It wouldn't look any different from the outside, but they claimed they needed to utilize the sky directly. When pressed to answer why this room and this house in particular, the three said that this had to be the spot and no other would do. Can you do it in a day? Slidia asked Fifi as the three paced the upstairs room. I can try, he shrugged. It shouldn't be that difficult. The parts for the boomer should arrive this afternoon, Archibald said. According to my calculations, we can do it from precisely here. How certain are you? Slotia squinted at him. It's at least a hundred yards to the outdoor ceremonial altar. I mean, without factoring in the divine. I'd say 100%. The math doesn't lie, and I checked it ten times at least. You factored in wind resistance? Slotia tapped her lips with her gloved hand. Based on the weather reports and figures, the wind will be blowing west out of the Calatran Strait. It should actually help if it picks up at all, but most reports are saying a cold front will blow through tonight and it will be sunny tomorrow morning. Perfect, Sladia said. Let's get started. The three worked all afternoon and evening, inside and outside the building. Fifi had two gnomish helpers who, between the three of them, could probably fix anything in the world mechanically within a short period of time without stopping to even survey what they were fixing. Sladia and Archibald felt helpless until one of them needed their height for something, which came up at least once every ten minutes. By midnight, the setup was complete, tested, and ready for performance. Fifi and the crew went to the bar with Archibald, but Saladia declined. She had a big day coming up, and even though she didn't sleep well, she wanted to rest anyway. After everyone had left, and Saladia was just preparing to lie down, she opened the suitcase to view the mirror mask and its polished reflection. It had viewed countless murders and would view an infinite number of further murders. The reflection was a metaphor. Anytime Saladia had ever taken a hit job, it had always been for the right reason. The mirror was to explain to the victim that their actions had brought this end upon themselves. Only when one was truly evil could they qualify to be murdered by her hand beneath the mask. 
Laying on the edge of the bed within her clothes and cloak, Sladia tried to sleep, waking periodically as her companions returned from the bar and found places to nestle within the room themselves. Archibald took the other side of the bed and began snoring in the early morning. None of it mattered to Saladia. She was already preparing herself to move. 6. Archibald, Fifi, and their help departed that morning. They needed to be as far away from the blast zone as possible. Fifi had spent much of the days and nights before arriving in Lanyon filing off the serial numbers and logos from every single part they used to alter the house and for the boomer itself. There was absolutely nothing that could tie them to the ensuing chaos that would surely reign that afternoon. Saladia's determination to follow through told Archibald and Fifi that failure was not a word in her personal vocabulary. They wished her luck and made for the city exit before the sun could break over the horizon. Lanyon was a completely different town on the morning of the ceremony. Somehow the poop smell from the moat had been subdued, the streets were no longer full of trash and urine, and celebratory banners displaying the city's colors covered the streets and lampposts. The bars and restaurants opened their doors and put tables and chairs outside for city dwellers to dine in the glory of the open air beneath the clear cloudless blue sky. Today was a new day, the christening of a new leader, and the mark of change for a new city. Saladia stepped out and went for a morning coffee at one of the cafes. People were already making the walk for the now open castle threshold, the drawbridge down to accept them. Everyone was excited for the event. Saladia could see it in their faces. Families of all ages made their way to the ceremonial venue as she finished her coffee. She stuffed the last of her bagel into her mouth, brushed the crumbs off her cloak, and made for the bar across the street from the castle. Bit early for a drink, eh? The bartender said. He was a run-down man with a large gut that was draped with his loose-fitting tunic. One of those days, right? Saladia gave him a fake smile as she slid onto the bar stool at the bar. She was the only person in the bar. It was an interesting building that the owner had opened the walls to so that the tavern could be outdoors for the spirit of the ceremony. What'll you have? He ran his tongue around the gum line of his teeth and smacked his lips. Your local L will be fine. Morning shine it is, he grunted. What do you think of this new queen? Saladia asked as the bartender placed the drink before her. Same old, same old, he lifted a hand. Do you like to drink in the morning, my new friend? Saladia beamed as she took a drink of her ale. Forty-five minutes later, and three drinks sloshing through her system, Saladia returned home to change into her formal attire. During the course of her conversation with the bartender, Saladia played like she was a journalist from one of the nearby towns. She claimed that she very much wanted to get a scoop on the different members of the royal family during the ceremony. The bartender said he often catered alcohol to the castle, but usually for rowdy parties for the kids. And what of the new pup taking the position of Duchess? Saladia asked. She's ruthless like her mom, that one, he said. She came in here with some bloke one night. The two were so tipsy they couldn't even stand up without the other support. And they made me give them more to drink and let them crash in my back room until the alcohol wore off. By morning, the whole town was covered with guards looking for them. They snuck out late in the morning and everything was fine. Same thing happened two months later, but they didn't crash with me. They stayed three blocks over at Jake's. And they got caught. Jake and his whole family are good people, but they had to close down after several guards cut off his and his wife's left hands. Why would they cut off their left hands? Sladia asked. Who knows? The bartender glared. I thank my lucky stars the same didn't happen to me. I think Marvis wanted to send a message to other people who might think they're gaining favor with the royal family by helping them. I guess you gotta admit it's pretty dangerous for the Duchess's daughter to wind up blackout drunk in some stranger from the town's bar. Could have been capital punishment. Could have been some lesson Mum wanted to teach the daughter. Either way, the next time little Angla found herself incapacitated at a bar, a small platoon of guards were called to take her home. Her boyfriend or whatever was eventually hanged. 
I don't think she did that again after that. That's probably the third or fourth time I've heard a story like that coming out of Lanyon's wealthier tier, Sladia said. Yeah, everyone's really hush-hush about Umbar, said the bartender. Everyone in town knows Marvis made that happen, no doubt about it. I mean, all of this is off the record, but how sure are you that Marvis actually did this? Sladia coaxed. People can gossip and pontificate all they want, but at the end of the day, isn't it all just rumors? The bartender shrugged. Maybe it is rumors, but Umbar stood for over a century and a half. It wasn't until they slighted Marvis and Engla that they were buried. If I hadn't heard dozens of stories over the years like the one I told you and like the one that happened to Umbar, maybe I'd chalk it up to coincidence. But the motive, the style, the signature of it all smells too much like what happened to Jake. Accidents happen all the time, but these aren't accidents. Slotty was set to make an appearance at the opening of the ceremony. She needed to get a visual on the layout of the inner courtyard of the castle. As she and dozens of others crossed the large mucky moat that surrounded the castle, she could feel her heart thrumming loudly within her chest. She wore a lavender dress that matched the fluff and bounce of her stylized red hair. Several dukes and young noblemen took notice of her. Like vultures, it wasn't until after she got a drink that they descended. A young man with a kind face made his way toward her. He wore a nice uniform for the occasion. Good morning, it's lovely. Keep walking, kid. Slutia glared at him from a raised glass. Omine, I'm at least ten years older than you. Nice try. The young man nodded and swiveled on his foot without breaking stride as he walked away. Slotia was getting some crackers to go with her drink when an older, more sophisticated, and far less itchy-looking duke approached. He had jet black hair that seamlessly followed his sideburns down to his beard and softened his sharp jawline. That's more like it, said Slotia. I'm the kind of person who hates bullshit, so if you're going to talk to me, let's cut it right now. She handed the nobleman a drink. Straight to the point. I like it. He raised a charismatic brow at her. From which household do you come? I'm a lucky mutt, waved Slotia. You wouldn't have heard of either of my parents. We're from the Aegir region. Ah, from a long line of pirates, eh? The man took a sip of his drink. Slotia's cheeks and ears went pink. A deduction like that was way too on the nose. No, I mean, I'd say they own a big chunk of Aegir, lied Slotia. She needed to embellish a little bit, otherwise the word would get around that she was of poor stock and no one would talk to her. Not that it mattered. She was only here for one reason anyway. You're the only woman drinking this early in the morning, said the duke. I would have bet money that you weren't local. You bet right, said Saladia. So what does a girl gotta do to get a little action in these parts? An hour later, Saladia emerged from one of the duke's empty real estate apartments several blocks from the castle. She stroked and patted her messy red hair down with her fingers. She could taste the ashy and herb flavor of the duke's cigar on her tongue. It would probably be with her for the rest of the day. Inadvisable? Yes. Satisfied? Extremely. The edge she'd felt all morning had been removed as the Duke had performed one of his most basic life functions to a sufficient degree. It was just the balance and distraction she needed to mentally prepare for what she was about to do. The streets had a number of people in them when she first made her way to the party, but now there were ten times as many. The celebration and ceremony was about to begin, and Saladia was ready. 7. The house with the customized room was empty when she arrived. The owner had gone to join the celebration. That was good because things were about to get messy. She pulled the first of three levers she would need to pull, which allowed the periscope to ratchet up above the rooftops of the houses on the street so she could peer just over the castle wall into the courtyard. Looking through, Slotia saw people silently making their way between the tables of food and drinks. At least a hundred long tables began to fill with the many city patrons as a line of guards protected the royal members of the family. 
She tuned into the small audio device that was currently clipped under the collar of the Duke she had hooked up with earlier. Pinpointing him in the crowd from this distance with the periscope would be impossible, but she could hear everything he heard from the noble's quadrant of the crowd. She could also see her target landing spot that both Fifi and Archibald had calculated with precision accuracy just in front of that area. A line of hired dancers in scantily clad clothing marched through the patrons, encouraging everyone to drink and fill their bellies. Saladia's eyes flicked between the blurry individuals until she saw two people who were in shiny white and gold outfits. They climbed the large platform that was probably the most important part of her objective. Saladia was stealthy, but she knew there would be no physical way to get to that platform other than launching herself over that wall to bypass the security in place. No one would expect it. The patrons would naturally think it was part of the show, and the guards wouldn't be able to react until well after Saladia had finished the job. She turned up the audio device that she had taken from Richter's stash, the setup the team had used to communicate in the Dark Harbinger. Tuning into the device's audio channel, Saladia heard the Duke chatting with a friend as they shared a drink. Beyond his yammering voice, Saladia could hear and see through the periscope that the Queen and her daughter were behind the stage curtain, trying to work through a few outfit problems. Saladia could probably have gone right then if it weren't for the curtain. It needed to be removed or else she'd wind up landing in a wad of heavy fabric. Almost as if she willed it to happen, the curtain suddenly slid aside from the outdoor stage that upheld the whole of the royal family. Good morning, everyone, the Chancellor called. He was a skinny man with a pointed mustache. He wore a yellow getup that mixed with his tight leggings. The noise of the crowd was deafening from the audio bug she had fixed to the Duke's collar. Saladia rolled the volume down on the audio headset the gnomes had created specifically for Richter's team to assist in the invasion of the Dark Harbinger. Are you ready to party? The Chancellor spread his arms. Saladia was shocked to see how crazy the crowd was becoming over this weird ceremony. The drums began and people started dancing at their seats. Someone yelled in her ear before the Duke was knocked to the ground somehow. There was some disturbance she could see in the crowd, but the center of it was just under the cover of the stone wall blocking much of the event from her sight with the periscope. The audio was ruffled and then cut out completely. Tapping the earpiece, Saladia sighed and unclipped it. No more audio. She'd have to go by sight even though she could still hear the drums in the distance. The Chancellor guy pointed at whatever was going on and laughed as the patrons visibly became more excited. Saladia didn't know very much about Lanyon, but it was becoming a place she didn't want to remain in for much longer. To her good fortune, she thought as she stepped away from the periscope and pulled the box that contained her suit out from under the bed, she wouldn't have to for much longer. Lifting the lid, the dark crimson suit she had made earlier that week glistened in the morning light. Within its slot on the lid side of the case, her mirror face mask glared back at her. Tying her hair up, Saladia unzipped her dress and let it hit the floor. Stepping out of it, she stood in her underwear as she shook the suit from the case. Saladia put the suit face down and drew the back zipper down to the suit's seat. Slipping her feet inside and into the boots of the uniform, she put her hands into the sleeves and was able to hook the zipper with a rod she had fashioned long ago for her previous suit. She zipped it up until the collar hugged her chin. She pulled the hair tie from her ponytail and then put on the cape, raising the hood of it over her head. The soft inside of the mask fit upon her face perfectly. There were three ties to secure the mask to her face that she knotted with both hands. Withdrawing another suitcase from under the bed, Sladia opened it to find her many assortments of weaponry, along with the suit's black belt. She put it around her waist and brought the buckle to the front only to realize that the two pieces wouldn't meet. Time had gotten to her. She had let herself slip and become too comfortable with Richter and the crew. Sladia took a deep breath and clipped the two pieces of the belt together. It was a little tight, but she would manage. 
Dagger 1, Noctrasil, a gift from her mentor, Captain Stuval. He had stolen it from the genocidal pirate, Juana Jol, before leaving him dead upon his sinking ship. Stuval had been shocked to see Juana Jol making his way to the pub in Asia six weeks later, but the two never met again. The history of Noctrasil was long, elaborate, and most likely bullshit. It was probably not fashioned by Amine, but created by some highly skilled blacksmith among the Chlorations, people who had been known for making powerful weaponry that had been conquered by various other tribes in the early Alondron Shartan history. Dagger 2, made specifically for her weight, height, size, reach, and grip by the Grandmaster knifemaker Giorgio Malacca. Hers was one of the last he made before the fall of the Assassin's Order that forced her to go into freelancing. You could only qualify for one after your 100th kill. Saladia didn't know if Malacca ever made it out, but it was very unlikely. Each dagger was placed in its holster at the small of her back. Five throwing knives for each hip were positioned about her waist while her locksmithing tools were placed in their pocket on the inside of the front belt. Each part of her getup had been designed for smooth motion, ease of access, and quick accessibility. She could see a target and send one of the throwing knives sailing into it with a 98% accuracy in just over a second of time. At least she could in her heyday. After trying in privacy behind Fifi's place, that accuracy was more like 79%. Not nearly as impressive. Saladia tapped both boots to make sure the backup knives were embedded there. They were. She was ready, and it was almost time. Stepping back up to the periscope, Saladia watched the queen and her daughter take the stage. The crowd could be heard from blocks away as they cheered. Large brasiers of fire were wheeled out by several waiters as the dancers danced to the new drumbeat. The queen and her daughter waved. Enough of this weird shit. Saladia shook her head and pulled the second lever that Fifi had installed. Saladia was glad the homeowner was at the celebration with the rest of the town because the whole house suddenly shook as the hydraulic roof Fifi and the crew had installed lifted the roof and rolled it back. The clear blue sky and chilly wind greeted her. She pulled the third lever and, from the box it had been housed within, the boomer cannon rose into the air. It was too big to fit in the room alone, so they had to modify the room itself to allow its wide and long barrel to aim from the open rooftop. Another cheer roared from over the wall that was about 50 yards away. While several blocks of city stood between her, she was only 100 yards from the Duchess at that time. Archibald had calculated every single bit of her flight. They had picked this house because it was the precise distance from that location. No other plan Slotia had figured would work. She would get inside the cannon and launch herself over the wall at the Duchess and her daughter. From there, the fates would decide if her aim was true. Archibald had warned that much of the plan was fine, except the landing part. He couldn't fathom how on a Londrinon she would be able to land at 60 miles per hour without first setting up a cushion of some kind, which she refused to do. She had told Archibald and Fifi that this was supposed to be a surprise for the Duchess. Fifi knew what was going on, but Archibald knew nothing of her actual plan to commit murder. Had he known, he probably wouldn't have allowed her to go through with it. Slutia climbed the grooves that were cut into the cannon until she was looking down on the city block over her shoulder as the wind rustled her cape. She climbed backwards over the rim and slid into the chamber of the cannon, sliding down the long inner wall to the springboard platform that was loaded with enough pressure to send her soaring a hundred yards. The sound from outside echoed down the slick inner walls of the cannon. There was a red button on the wall that she was to press whenever she was ready. Bracing herself as Fifi had told her to, Saladia swallowed hard, gazed out through the circle of sky overhead, and hit the button. The three seconds it took for the panel to slowly cover the button seemed to take an eternity. It was one of those things where the mechanism fires so quickly, she was staring at the oval of the sky overhead, and then she was in it. She soared straight over the houses and right over the castle wall. 
Thousands of patrons, hearing the fake gunpowder explosion, craned in their seats and saw her. The pinnacle passed and she began to descend. It all seemed to happen in slow motion. It was hard to believe, but she had already passed a number of checkpoints, including one that she had set for herself to take action. Saladia expanded the glide form of the cape that Fifi had built. It would allow her to come in slow, at least slower than dangerously fast. The rush of cold upon her face became a gentle breeze with her glide as she aimed for the platform. The Duchess and her daughter saw her. The guards and soldiers saw her, but no one knew this wasn't part of the celebration. A look of glee could be seen upon Marvis's daughter's face as Slaya sailed toward her and her mother. Both of their expressions darkened as they processed the mirror mask upon her face. Slaya flew between the two women, both of whom suddenly fell to their knees, as Slaya fluttered to a halt at the back of the stage. The guards instinctively rushed to protect the queen and her daughter, but it was already too late. Slaya's poison throwing knives had sailed true upon her descent, sticking into the knee of Marvis and the thigh of her daughter Angla. Once the guards realized that the show had been an assault, they drew their swords and rushed for the assassin. Saladia turned, sending five guards to their backs with the flick of her normal throwing daggers. A guard in formal attire reached her, thrusting his sword violently. Saladia stepped aside, grabbed his outstretched sword arm, and shoved her arm between it and the collar of the back of his head. She then smashed the guard's helpless form over her knee. Two more guards arrived. Slaudia drew both knives and parried their attacks, eventually coercing one guard to pierce the other. Turning, an arrow nailed Slaudia's mirror mask right on the forehead, bouncing off. Another guard smashed his elbow across her face, sending her into a daze as the mask shattered, the remaining pieces hanging from her ears behind her hair. She could taste blood as the blow shocked the reality into her. Slaudia smashed her fist into the solar plexus of the guard who had hit her, ramming the blade of her knife into his backside while he was doubled over. Things were getting real. Slaudia backed away from the crowd of guards surrounding her on the platform. Behind them, Marvis and her daughter looked pale as a physician from the audience tried to extract the throwing knives. This was it, Slaudia realized as her back bumped into the courtyard wall at the far end of the platform. She was skillful, but no one person can fight off an army of guardsmen on a level playing field. She had done what she came here to do, and her fate would be just like that of the Umbar assassin. This moment was where it all ended. They were about to rush her when the wall to her left exploded. Saladia, eyes wide, gaped as Richter, geared out and covered in brown muck as he had obviously swam through the moat, charged through the blast hole and swung his axe at the awestruck guards. Saladia didn't question anything. She chucked a smoke bomb, grabbed Richter by the collar, and rushed the two through the gap Richter had blown in the wall. 8. At the edge of the moat, Dothori, Ella, Mulligan, and Waldo were mounting the incline, a rickety paddle boat on the edge of the moat at their backs. None of them were covered in mucky moat water. Everyone wore their best gear. Saladia couldn't have looked more confused at their sudden appearance. Come on! Richter beckoned for everyone to follow. Richter had set another charge on the roof of the hole while the two exited through the courtyard wall. As the group made for the nearby sewer entrance, it blew. Two guards had escaped behind them and were hurrying to catch up. Thunk. Ella made quick work of them. What are you five doing here? Slaudia paused by the castle drainage port to catch her breath. Aside from saving your sorry butt, said Ella, cocking her elven brow at her. The five others seemed far more aware of what was going on as they filed onto the graded walkway over the flow of excess water from the castle. That included feces, urine, dead animals, and the occasional poos, a supernatural creature that forms from the microscopic collection of magical elements in sewer-like environments. They probably wouldn't run into a poos, but it was always a possibility. Slaudia followed them in. 
You probably think you're pretty slick, huh? Richter scoffed to Saladia as they all turned the first corner. Not really, Saladia murmured. If Richter hadn't shown up, she'd be dead. She had no doubt about that, so she didn't feel slick at all. Farther down the corridor, lurking skeletal minions roamed the sewer channel. That was not something native to a normal castle sewer. Raising skeletons required powerful dark magic, even if the skeletons weren't very hard to kill on their own. But if one were to animate an entire graveyard, thousands of skeletons is a different story. Before the skeletons could see them, the six pressed their backs to the wall to hide behind the partition between the sewer channels. Ella leaned into the passageway with her bow at the ready. She flicked off six arrows silently within two seconds, taking down each of the skeletal sentries. The six continued. Guys, this path takes us to town. We can get out of here. Saladia pointed down the channel as they walked by. Richter paused and glanced over his shoulder. Not today, Cell. You know, he squinted as he turned to look at her. Of all the people I trust, it hurts most to be lied to by you. He continued forward. Saladia watched Thori and Ella shake their heads as they looked away from her. Mulligan looked disheartened and Waldo's face expressed genuine remorse for having gotten her into the situation. Saladia wanted to ask where they were going and why, but what did it matter? She was going with Richter and the others. She was indebted to them now. Her life wouldn't have continued without her friends, and maybe that was best. Without them, who was she? Saladia realized that the two pieces of her mask were still hanging from her ears. When she pulled the pieces off, she could see that only the parts where the thread connected remained. The assassin she had been was gone. Catching up to the others, Saladia tossed the shards of mirror aside and kept her eyes peeled for traps. Richter stopped halfway through the next channel and turned left toward the rounded sewer wall. No one else saw the painted eye at first, but Richter did. He kept a long, retractable metal stick on his belt. Throwing it out, the stick became a rod. He pressed the lifted button in the center of the eye, and then the two sides of the sewer wall split apart. A cloudy mist emerged from the corridor as Richter stepped inside. Everyone else followed. Saladia pressed one of the halves to close the door behind them so no one could sneak up on them. Within the now square corridor, they could see the passage branch off in different directions. Remember what we planned, Richter tapped his helmet. Dothori, you and me drain the water. Waldo, you and Mulligan close off the north valve in coordination with Ella. Ella, you get to explain to Saladia what you two will be doing. Meet at the giant statue of Marvis. Everyone nodded and went with their respective partners. Saladia followed Ella to the right, which curved up and exited out to a platform overlooking a sprawling inner cavern with a large aqueduct of water cutting through the center. Multiple bridges crossed over the water's passage, while other paths were carved throughout the opposite wall leading to the castle on the other side. Saladia gauged that the distance between them and the barred castle entrance was at least two and a half miles. Gotcha, Ella said into the communicator at her ear. The two descended a long ladder that dropped through the cavern. At the bottom, there was a massive crankshaft with four handles. So, there's only one way to get into Marvis's throne room, Ella said to Saladia from below her. It's at the bottom of that aqueduct. We're not trying to get into the castle, Saladia asked. There's no reason. We need to find Marvis and Angla, Ella said. Saladia shook her head. Start over. I'm thoroughly confused because I am almost positive no mortal could survive the poison daggers I nailed them with. You really shouldn't have run off on your own, sighed Ella. A lot has happened since you left. Remember Guy Maynard? Who? Saladia glared down at Ella over her shoulder. They were about halfway down the ladder. Guy Maynard, the guy whose brother went missing, Ella said. His brother was from Lanyon, but it turns out a lot of weird stuff has been going on in this town. People have been disappearing, bizarre behavior has been seen from the people who are still here, and Duchess Marvis is at the center of a vast underground criminal enterprise. 
What? Slutia's voice echoed through the cave around them. She's also a powerful undead sorceress who probably balked at your silly poison dagger, Ella added. Points for creativity with the cannon, though. Ella dropped to the lower level of the cavern. She immediately withdrew a hammer and stuck four eye bolts into the corner of her mouth. So that means I royally screwed up, Slotia said as Ella began hammering the eye bolts into the stone wall of the shaft with the crank in the center. Ella withdrew the eye bolts to speak. Richter's pretty pissed off. He seems like the type who doesn't hold on to things for very long though. She continued hammering the eye bolts. Something tells me things might be different this time, Slotia said. Ella shrugged then spoke around the remaining eye bolts in her mouth as she moved around the wall. We could have gone into the sewer without saving you. Richter is the one who always brings explosives. You should thank him. Think I owe him more than that, said Slotia, watching Ella hammer the last eye bolt in place. So what are we doing here? How does this work? Ella began tying ropes to each of the crank handles. She looked up the tube over them. It takes four strong men to close the valves on each side, but you have to do it on both sides at the same time. That seals the north and south channels to the aqueduct. If you don't drain the aqueduct within five minutes, the valves will both reopen so that the water can continue flowing. The entrance to Marvis's throne room is at the bottom of the aqueduct. And the ropes? The channel wants to be open due to the pressure of the water flow. That means we're using the crank to fight the water's passage through the aqueduct. Since we don't have four strong men, you and I will be tying each rotation off. Ella tossed two of the ropes she had tied to Saladia. You show about that? Saladia asked jokingly. I'm show, Ella smirked, responding in kind. The two normally got along better with one another than the others, probably why Richter assigned them together. Waldo, you and Mulligan ready? Why would you assign two casters to push something heavy? Slotia could hear Waldo's complaining voice from the speaker in Ella's earpiece. Same reason he assigned two agile women to crank the other side, said Ella. I think Cell and I might weigh 150 pounds between the both of us. Slotia gave a silent glare and snarl at Ella's back in front of her. You ready, Cell? She asked. Ready. Slotia put both gloved hands upon the crank handle. Ella and Slotia pushed as hard as their weight and strength would allow. The audible break of the seal at the center of the crankshaft meant they were succeeding. They slowly moved clockwise around the tube as the crank rotated. Once they made a quarter turn, Ella looped the rope tied to her handle through the eye bolt on the wall and cinched the rope tight while keeping the pressure on her shoulder. Slotia did the same with her crank. It took a lot of effort in pulling and tying with the ropes, but eventually Richter clicked on to confirm that both north and south channels were sealed. Gotta do this next part quickly, Ella finished tying off the crank. The two stepped back warily as the ropes kept the crankshaft locked in place, even though it visibly wanted to roll back to the open position. Slotia ducked under the ropes they had tied and followed Ella back up the ladder. They retraced their steps and followed the passage to the bridge across the aqueduct. On the opposite side of the slowly draining aqueduct was a statue of Marvis with her hand raised piously to the cavern ceiling. Waldo and Mulligan reached the statue at the same time Ella and Slotia arrived. Hurry! Richter came running down the steps on their right with the Thori following at his heels. The six clambered down the stairway leading into the channel of the wide aqueduct that was still slick with moisture from where the water had been earlier. Under the bridge Saladia and Ella had crossed over, a large sealed doorway was positioned under the wall. Five yards directly in front of it was a large, square button. I'll press the button. You five, go inside. Everyone waited by the door as Richter climbed onto the stone square. It didn't move. He jumped up and down on it, but nothing happened. Mulligan and Waldo hurried over and climbed onto the button, but it still didn't move. There was a loud snapping sound. The north seal bounced and a trickle of water sloshed through the small gap that had been made. Ella and Saladia hurried and jumped onto the button along with the Thori. It's not moving, Dithori cried. Another snap filled the cavern. 
This was followed by a strained clicking that was the rub of the ropes that remained in place. There wasn't much time before the makeshift rigs the duos had made north and south would begin to fail in quick succession. After that, the whole aqueduct would be flooded with water once more. Richter looked up. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. There was an equally large square weight locked into the ceiling. I guess that's what the other button was supposed to do. I told you to press it, Dothori grinned. She was known for pressing buttons when she wasn't supposed to. Her youthful curiosity often got the best of her and she couldn't help herself. It had gotten the group in trouble on more than one occasion. There's not enough time to go back! Richter tossed his pack on the ground. He withdrew a bundle of dynamite and told everyone to clear out. The group dismounted the stone square and hurried to the far wall about 50 yards away. Richter cut the fuse to about 15 seconds, lit it, and heaved the dynamite onto the bridge walkway overhead. He jumped off the square and jogged to the others. Everyone turned to the wall and covered their ears. Boom! The bridge collapsed, most of the debris landing on the square. The trickle from the north seal had become a heavy flow. The button was covered, but the door still wasn't open. Richter mounted the debris and was able to get the door open just enough for each party member to slip inside. Dothori, Mulligan, and Saladia positioned a rock into the doorway as Richter jumped off the mound. The stone cracked to the center as both sides of the door compressed upon it. Richter scrambled inside as a rush of water overtook the debris. No sooner did the stone crumble to pieces between the two halves of the door that sealed behind them. The sudden sound of water filling the channel beyond the threshold filled their ears. That was close, Richter mopped his brow. Better than fighting our way to the castle. You mean there was an entrance in the castle all along? Ella asked. Probably, Richter shrugged. You don't think Marvise would go through that much trouble just to get into her secret lair, do you? Ella scoffed and shook her head. 9. The six entered a large hall with torches that lined the stairwell leading up to the top floor of the throne room. A stone panel slid closed behind Athori, who was just able to slip inside before it could injure her. Throughout the large steps of the passage leading to the top, dozens of shadowy minions in black garb appeared and descended on them. The group was thrown into major combat, with Richter cleaving his heavy axe through multitudes of bad guys. The occasional nick and stab wound from the enemy was remedied by a holy spell from Mulligan who could never be seen far from Richter's side. Ella, back against Saladia's, fired arrows in succession while Saladia exhausted her throwing knife stash before taking up her daggers to end her share of the advancing enemies. Waldo used his powerful magical spells to obliterate Smash and freeze his foes to their death. Dothori drummed on her loot while bounding between her companions to give them the support they needed. She swung her loot back and forth for defense as three of the masked men cornered her. Saladia dove between them to trip and neutralize two of them. Dothori used her loot's headstock to uppercut the third assailant. The group deflected and warded away each crew of enemies while they ascended the staircase. Once they reached the top, the hordes of enemies were gone. At the end of a large open hall was a throne where Paula and Angla Marvis were waiting for them. They were both still donned in the ceremonial garb they had been wearing at the party. Well, 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 what do we have here? Paula Marvis got to her feet and walked across the hall to meet them. An unemployed dwarf, an estranged elf, a betrayer human, an underage child, an alcoholic priest, and a stoner wizard. Since you've wasted your time and lives coming here, I'll indulge you by asking why you came and what you expected to gain. Your head on the end of this axe. Richter spun his axe in his hands. You killed my grandfather, Waldo stepped around Mulligan. Prepare to die! His hands filled with their signature elemental fire. Paula Marvis laughed and floated off the ground into the air. Angla, we have pests to eradicate. Linus, she called. 
Slutty readied herself as the assassin Linus Lanzel approached. He's mine. After that, all hell broke loose. It was hard to follow what happened with any one of them with the spells flying in all directions. Richter ducked under Paula's blue fire blast as he jogged for her. She easily maneuvered away from him along the wall of the throne room. Angla rammed her fingers into the ground. Seconds later, violent red spines shocked from the tile floor, sending Richter flying away from her mother. From there, Angla was engaged with Ella, who seemed to have a vendetta against the newly appointed Duchess. Paula cast a deflection spell to block against Waldo's surge of magic missiles. Saladia and Linus Lanzel were clashing blades in a sparking dance of strikes and blocks. Mulligan shot Richter with a healing spell. Dothori watched all of this unfold. Her friends battled for their lives while she ducked away from Linus Lanzel, who'd been thrown across the room by Saladia. Richter was trying to hack through Angla's weird fingers that seemed to regenerate instantly with every thrust Angla sent through the floor. At the same time, Angla was whipping Ella's arrows out of the air when one didn't pin into her shoulder. Then, Dothori barely avoided a fiery blue explosion from Paula as she hurried to Waldo's side. Waldo was flinging fireballs at Paula left and right. What she didn't dodge, she canceled out with a blocking spell. Ella redoubled her attention on Paula as Richter bounded over the irritating red spines from Angla's fingers and crashed into her. Dothori, Ella, duck! Waldo yelled. As Ella had taken Paulo's aggro, Waldo had fired a level 3 fireball that had grown to the size of him. It swam over Dothori's shoulders before Ella cartwheeled out of the way. Angla turned away from Richter and was struck full blast by the fireball. She went sprawling into the side of the Duchess's throne like a ragdoll. Plan C! Dothori called. Dothori took a deep breath that was audible to the entire room. The piercing sound that emerged from her vocal cords sent both Linus Lanzel and Paula Marvis into a state of paralysis as they covered their ears reflexively. Waldo charged and cast a freezing globe upon Paula Marvis. Richter jogged toward her as Saladia performed a finishing move upon Linus Lanzel that was his undoing. Mulligan and Ella met ten yards from Paula Marvis who was trapped within Waldo's sphere of cold. They locked their forehands together to form a perfect foothold. Richter hopped onto their reinforced palms as they hoisted him toward Paula Marvis. Flying through the air with his axe raised and at the ready, Richter swung and smashed his blade through the vicious harpy's frozen throat as he passed her. Paula Marvis's head, eyes and face in sheer shock at the situation, left her body as all the magic dissipated and she fell to the floor, shattering into pieces. Richter landed and sheathed his axe, Paula's head smacking into the ground next to him as it had taken on much of his inertia. Everyone looked between one another, making sure there were no other threats to be dealt with. Angela was still alive, but most of her body was covered with burns. Mulligan was able to heal her wounds, but the scar tissue would never fully mend. Well, good work, everyone! Saladia, you're rehired, Richter said. Mulligan had moved to treating her wounds as she'd been stabbed by Linus Lanzel seven times during their epic skirmish. The group exited out through one of the nearby doors, since the other exit was impossible. They entered a large kitchen from the cupboard. The kitchen staff looked perplexed by their sudden appearance. One of the kitchen cleaners saw them and hurried into the hall corridor. Why didn't you shoot her? Richter spread his hands to Ella. I'm not going to shoot an innocent person, Ella said. Oh, I might have. Richter stroked his beard. Then it's a good thing impulsive dwarves aren't in charge of both lookout and the explosives. Saladia clapped a hand on Richter's shoulder. Richter squinted at her with a smug look on his face. Glad to have you back, Sal. Five is a good number, but it's nothing like six. Six is not known to be a very fortuitous number, Mulligan argued. At least twelve guards hurried around the corner with their weapons at the ready. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Richter held up his hands as more guards filled the corridor beyond the kitchen. There's something you should know about your former queen, Paula Marvis. 
She was an evil demon who had mind-controlled much of the town. Think about it. You're only here because it's your job to be here, but you have no allegiance to Duchess Marvis. Where is Duchess Paula Marvis? One of the guards asked. It was worth a shot, said Richter, throwing a hand to the axe over his shoulders. The guards visibly readied themselves to move. Stop! Angela Marvis appeared at the head of the steps behind the party. She walked around Saladia and Ella and moved through the parted guards toward the upper throne room down the hall. Before she could leave their sight, she beckoned for them to follow. The guards sheathed their weapons and dispersed back to their positions as Richter, Ella, Saladia, Waldo, Dothorian, Mulligan followed Angla's direction. She sat on the throne at the top of the steps and sighed. I imagine if you six really wanted, you'd have massacred half my army to escape. You might even have succeeded. We're pretty good at what we do, Richter shrugged. I should have you executed, said Angla. I should have you tortured for information, slowly and painfully, and I should have you burned alive for your ashes to be spread over my mother's burial, but for my first official action as Duchess of Lanyon? You, assassin. I'm not going to kill you because my mother did hire Linus Lanzel and she did eliminate the city of Umbar intentionally in the process. It seems that to hire an assassin to take out my mother in turn is merely an eye for an eye. If that is the case, would you consider your job complete, or am I to look over my shoulder and expect you in the shadows forevermore? I'm not sure I understand, said Saladia. Angler redirected her statement to all of them. If I release you right now and you six never return to the city of Lanyon, are we cool? Richter turned to give everyone an open-minded look. Waldo stroked his chin, shrugging. Saladia rubbed her neck, looking between everyone. Ella, Mulligan, and Dothori had no dog in the fight, so they couldn't care less. When no one said anything, Richter turned his attention to Angla. I think we're cool, he said. In that case, you have one hour to gather your silly compression canyon from the house around the block and be on your way. Consider this your warning. Should I ever see any of you in Lanyon again, I might not be so generous. No one argued. They filed out of the castle through the front and left through the castle courtyard where much of the commotion of the day had begun. They left the castle walls and were able to retrieve the compression cannon from the house where Slatia had left it. She changed out of her assassin's garb to her travel clothing and felt considerably more comfortable. From there, the six made their way back home. 10. What the hell are we going to do with this thing? Ella asked from behind the boomer cannon as they rode the giant chain elevator in the center of row to the seventh floor where their headquarters was located. They had hoped to avoid the questioning of the guards, but the guards merely laughed as they passed them. Ingrates, Richter grumbled as they shoved the boomer through the elevator threshold onto the seventh floor. Don't worry, I'm going to sell this thing back to Fifi for maybe half price. He'll find a buyer, said Saladia. They turned down their street and pushed the cannon all the way down to their headquarters that looked out through the nearby archway off the western rim. The group pushed the boomer through the alleyway behind their headquarters, positioning it securely in the lockable back storage they had between the buildings. It wasn't much space, but it would hold the boomer until Saladia could get it back to Fifi. Richter tossed a tarp over it so it wouldn't get damaged by the constant rain that was scattering the city daily this time of year. Home sweet home! Richter sighed and withdrew his keys only to find that the door lock was broken and open. Stepping inside, the six saw a man with a heavily bearded face sitting at the pub up front. He had helped himself to a drink of whiskey and turned to greet them as they entered. Captain Stuval? Slotia asked. The man grinned and raised his glass. He had a broad chin that was currently hidden by his beard, sea blue eyes, and long unkempt black hair. What's a guy gotta do to get some service around here? Looks like you helped yourself to it, Richter said. Well, I'm not a patient person, and I've been here for about four hours. 
Stuval turned back to the bar to pour five additional drinks for his patrons. Are we supposed to pay this guy or is someone going to throw him out already? Richter asked. It's fine, Richter. He's with me, Saladia said. Stuval, said Ella. Aren't you wanted, like, everywhere? Sure, he grinned charismatically. I am the most wanted pirate currently in existence. If you want to turn me in, hop to it. He slipped a drink into Ella's hand. She tongued her back tooth before taking a sip of the whiskey. Stuval gave Richter his glass, which Richter downed before going behind the bar to retrieve the bottle. He set his plate mail cap and the glass on the counter, and then joined Stuval at the barstool by his side. Ella and Saladia sat on Stuval's other side. Dothori went into her room of the headquarters to change out of her gear. Mulligan and Waldo received their glasses and joined the others around the bar. So to what occasion do we owe the pleasure? Richter asked. I might have a job that would require your skills, but it's a little bit of a different pace than you're used to, Stuval began. We're listening, Richter rolled his wrist. I'm putting together a 42-man raid to take down a dragon in the Aegir region. The loot from its belly will be split between everyone. You six will be your own platoon. The bounty is expected to be significant. Stuval drank the last of his drink. Richter gave a husky laugh. Oh, now that's more like it! Thanks for tuning into the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. I can't explain why that episode took so long to produce, but going from the actual recording to completion took about two full work days, and that was rushing it. The good part is how enjoyable Richter's stories are to write, read, and produce, so it's all good. Everything in life is a work in progress, and that is very true with this podcast. From editing the openings and closings of past and present episodes to the very metadata that each episode contains, these are all things that really need updating, along with the regular processes of writing and reading them. If you're someone who likes reading along with the transcripts, that is also something that's on my list of things that need doing. Thanks for being patient with the slow growth of this platform. At the outset of releasing this podcast almost two years ago, I had hoped to release an episode every week. There are enough ideas logged and even written to make that possible, but perfectionist me alone, I like to give everyone something good, which means a deadline or two might get missed. One day we'll crack the code and you'll have that episode every week. That's a promise. That being said, the best way to help grow the podcast is to listen, subscribe, like, and purchase my audiobooks on Audible. If I were to recommend one subscription every month, it wouldn't be a video streaming service, it wouldn't be a gym membership, it would be Audible. I personally listen to audio stories so, like Richter, I can use my two hands to do other things while enriching my mind with audio content. I downloaded a great courses history class about ancient Rome. I think I've listened to it five times now because not only can I not retain that much awesome information, but hearing it over and over really lets me hardwire that knowledge into my brain. To get a trial subscription, go to audibletrial.com slash apocalypsetheaterpodcast, all one word, or get my latest audiobook, The Last Necromancer, for free with a trial subscription by clicking on the link on my website at ekpublishingmedia.com. Thanks for listening. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, edited, and produced by Benjamin Allen. To support us, like, subscribe, download one of my audiobooks, or check out the donation page on my website at ekpublishingmedia.com. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media production 2020.